Peace be on you and welcome to Al-Hakam Inspire. Today we're going to be talking about the eye, how it works, even how to improve the eye and also go in to some of the aspects of the Holy Quran and the eye. And for this today we are honored to have with us Dr. Ahsan Khan who is an ophthalmologist who specializes in cataract and glaucoma surgery in South California in the States. He has been in practice for 16 years and has written various publications in the field of ophthalmology, including a book chapter on glaucoma laser treatments. He also serves as the director of the Gift of Sight program for Humanity First USA, and Humanity First is an international charity. And the Gift of Sight program takes teams of doctors to underserved parts of the world to conduct eye medical camps. Dr. Asen is also a faculty consultant to the Masuru Eye Institute in Burkina Faso in West Africa. Dr. Asen, it's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, thank you uh, for the kind uh, intro and the pleasure is mine. I'm, I'm very honored to be here with both of you today. Jazakallah. Thank you for joining. As a disclaimer, Al-Hakam Inspire does not advise the implementation of any specific conclusion from today's episode. During the podcast, we present ideas and research on the topic and surrounding areas. The aim of the podcast is to provide an enjoyable experience of knowledge acquisition, exploring current research and future ideas, and reflecting on the spiritual and Islamic traditions where applicable. First of all, very broadly speaking, talk to us about the eye. How does it work? And is it part of the brain? Sure. Yeah. So um, the eye is a very interesting structure, a very uh, complex structure. And uh, yes, the short answer is it is a part of the brain. Uh, the best analogy that I give to patients is uh, the eye is like a camera. So if you can uh, imagine a camera, it has two main components. Uh, the first component is the front of the camera, which is includes the lens and the aperture and, uh, you know, the, the, the light filters. So that would be like the iris and the pupil. Uh, and then you have the back of the camera, which has the film, which captures the image and produces a picture, uh, which uh, in the eye would be the retina. So uh, the eye itself has the, the front apparatus, which takes in the image. And then it has the back apparatus, which is the retina, which processes the image. Um, but then there's a third component, which a camera doesn't have, which the human eye has, which is the connection to the brain via a cable called the optic nerve. And the optic nerve is, in fact, an extension of the brain. So that's kind of like a basic understanding of how the eye works. And how do we bring in light to this? You know, in basic science, which we learn in school, we all um, go through the vision and how we actually see through light. So if you could talk about the role of light and also there's this whole um, conversation about the eye and the light and circadian rhythms, the sleep-wake cycle. So if you could sure. just kind of talk about light. Yeah, yeah. So just from at a very basic level, a light is made up of uh, energy particles called photons. And so uh, the function of the eye is to process those photons into an image. So how does that work? So that's where the miracle of the eye um, comes in. And that's why I'm, I gravitated to this field is how does a photon of light uh, imprint into our brain to create a picture, which we can then conjure up in our minds, you know, 20, 30 years later. And so it's a, it's a complex set of steps that happens where when light comes into the eye, 
it uh, goes through different structures that allows an image to focus. And then there are receptors in the back of the eye uh, which capture that light. Um, and those receptors, some uh, are specific to color and uh, some are not. And then uh, those images will then transfer to the brain. And that's where the brain will process these images and imprint them into our mind. Uh, to your question about circadian rhythm, you know, uh, there's a day and a night cycle uh, that God has bestowed us with. And so obviously uh, during the daytime, we are seeing images because there's light entering our eye, but our eye is able to adapt in the dark. Uh, there are specific pigments uh, uh, which uh, are called rods. They're made of a pigment called rhodopsin and they allow us to see in the dark. Uh, whereas cones, which are specific to color vision, allow us to see in the day. Now, uh, just, just just kind of coming in there, uh, you spoke about rods and them being in effect during the dark. What's this, you know, uh, that transition period where suddenly the lights go off, you can't see anything and then you can su suddenly see better over like the next few minutes. What's happening there? Yeah, that's called the dark adaptation. So that's interesting. So if you're in a lit condition, a lot of light is entering your eye through your pupil, which is an aperture. So the pupil is the dark spot in our eye. And the reason why it's dark is, is because light is not escaping. And so it's actually a hole in our iris. And you could think of it as an aperture. So the way our eye works is that it's is that when you're in lit conditions, the pupil will be small. And then when you go into a dark environment, the pupil will become larger to allow more light to enter. So if you're in a well-lit room and, and it's nighttime, let's say, and then all of a sudden you shut off the lights, there's a series of events that happens. First, the pupil becomes larger to allow more light to come in, but it's not enough for you to really make out images, just enough for maybe you to see shadows. And then those rods, which were normally bleached out in the light, they start to regenerate. And that takes about between five and 20 minutes. So uh, initially you'll start seeing some images, but then within 15, 20 minutes, you can actually probably navigate your way into the dark. Um, it doesn't happen instantaneous. And so we call that period dark adaptation. And it's quite interesting, actually, because um, there are studies to show that those people who like look at their phones uh, right before they go to sleep, they are actually disrupting their uh, daylight cycle because uh, light uh, from a phone, for example, it'll, it'll emanate um, UV light. And that can actually suppress uh, certain aspects of melatonin and that can disrupt your sleep. So the general thought is that if you can get uh, glasses that uh, diminish the amount of UV light, quote unquote, blue blocking glasses, which I personally feel there's not much science to show that they actually help with regular reading or eye fatigue. But certainly at night, if you can wear those or if you can get phones that have blue light filters, there is science to show that that actually might produce more restful sleep at night. I mean, that's that's very interesting. So with, with the eye itself, throughout our lives, can it develop? Is there a way of improving eyesight um, or maintaining good eyesight? Sure. And Dr. Hasham, as you know, in, the, in, in, uh, in medicine and in health, um, a lot of our function, a lot of the way our organs function is a product of a combination of both genetics and environment. And the eye is no different. So, uh, you know, some people who are nearsighted, meaning their eye is longer than a normal eye, so light is not focusing on the retina, image is blurred. Some of that is genetically coded. We inherit that from our parents or from our ancestors. Similarly, if the eye is too short, which is called farsightedness, you, you will need glasses. 
But then there's also the environmental component. And there's uh, studies to show that uh, certain um, environmental triggers can affect how your eye develops. And, uh, you know, some people think that, again, coming back to using excessive, uh, you know, devices, which has been happening more and more in the last few years, studies have shown that uh, youth are needing more glasses lately. Um, and especially with COVID, I was going to say right, that, right. you know, there's been everyone on their screens on yes. Zoom calls. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, I was just reading a study, I think it was um, out of Hong Kong, which uh, actually demonstrated that there is increased myopia or nearsightedness in kids just in the last two, three years due to the pandemic. Again, probably due to excessive screen time, but it actually may not be the screens themselves. It just may be the fact that they're not they're not outside and they're not getting actually natural light, which has been shown to improve the development of the eye. Um, so, Dr. Hasham, uh, yeah, so, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to ask for our listeners who don't understand what is myopia. Yes, yeah, so myopia is a medical term for nearsightedness. So. Um, you know, when light enters our eye, uh, it enters through a lens which will focus light onto our retina. So uh, if the eye is not in the normal shape for light to land on the retina and becomes out of focus, it can happen for one of two reasons. If the eye is too long, that's called myopia. If the eye is too short, it's called hyperopia or farsightedness. So uh, there are ways to, to correct myopia. For example, there's refractive laser surgery. But the most simple way to correct myopia is what uh, Fathir Saab is doing, which is wearing glasses or wearing contact lenses. And, that, um, and, that's, and that's actually the, the most common cause of sight impairment in the world is simply needing, uh, needing a pair of glasses. And we can get into that a little bit later, but it's, it's amazing how many people in the world are walking around with, um, unable to uh, see, but the simple fix is just needing a pair of glasses. I just want to backtrack a, a second and go over to that point where you were saying that it could be that children aren't getting outside enough. And of course, um, like through the pandemic, there's been an issue. Why would being outside be beneficial for the eyes? Yeah, so um, there is actually a study by Dr. Bressler um, out of uh, Harvard. Um, and there are some other studies that collab uh, that corroborated some of this evidence that um, the uh, ability for your eye to focus or the lack of ability due to myopia or nearsightedness um, may be correlated with the amount of natural light that you get. And so uh, using devices or being indoors, uh, you know, you're not uh, exposing your eyes to natural light and that could affect the elongation of the eye. And so, uh, you know, we're starting to see some of the effects of that. And again, it may not be during the pandemic that people are just on their phones that much more. It's just that they're not going out as much. So we know in medicine that there's so many benefits to being outdoors and getting natural light. Uh, but now we know that um, its effects on progression of myopia are there as well. And just another question kind of following on from that. What if someone says that um, we've got all the lights off? on rather in our house yeah. isn't that enough i mean what's the sure um you know the intensity of lights sure yeah yeah it's a good question i mean uh you know for example there's led lights which now give you a lot more light um and you know you can illuminate your house as much as you want but god has given us a lamp that emanates light at thousands and thousands of fold more than uh, what we can produce in our home and that's that light bulb that's out up in the sky which is the sun 
And, uh, you know, I don't know the numbers of, of, you know, how much fold more light comes from the sun versus the most illuminated room that you can, that you can find, but there is certainly no substitute. Um, and, you know, coming back to this idea of blue blocking glasses, um, I think it's a little bit gimmicky. You know, uh, people say that uh, with eye fatigue, if you wear blue blocking glasses, uh, it actually can help. So the whole idea is that there's a visible spectrum of light, right? And uh, there's only certain colors that we can see within those wavelengths. And the shortest wavelength is violet. And you remember from grade school, there's violet and blue, indigo, and then yellow and orange and red. And that's a spectrum. So anything shorter than blue is called ultraviolet and anything longer than red is called infrared. So those are uh, elements of the wavelength that our eye is unable to see. And so um, the thought is, is that blue blocking glasses will block some of the harmful ultraviolet light, the light that's shorter than, than blue light. And, uh, but there's no evidence to suggest that it actually enhances or improves vision. What we do know though, is that if you're on your devices for a long period of time, you tend to blink less frequently. So, you know, the normal human eye blinks about 18 to 20 times a minute. Uh, but when you're reading something or you're absorbed on Instagram for, I don't know how many minutes, you're not blinking as much. In fact, yeah. some evidence suggests you might blink only three or four times a minute. And so your eyes can get fatigued. They can dry, they can dry up. So just using simple eye drops is probably a better solution than using blue blocking glasses. So just quickly there, why is blinking so important? You, you did talk about drying up. Yeah, blinking is extremely important because um, our eyes, um, the, the front of our eye is the cornea, and the cornea is a very clear structure, and it requires constant lubrication. It needs to stay moist. And if there's no moisture on the cornea, then it'll dry up, and you'll be unable to see. The analogy I like to give is that eyelids are like window wipers. I don't know what they call them in the United Kingdom. But, um, you know, if you're driving in the rain and your wipers are not working, you're not able to see very well. So think of your eyelids as window wipers. They're constantly kind of wiping and lubricating your cornea so you're able to see. So, again, if you're not if you if you set your window wipers on your car in the driving rain and they're supposed to go off only two times a minute, then you're going to struggle. Yeah. And so that that's sort of the concept. I mean, particularly nowadays, uh, ever since COVID, the wearing of masks, um, people staying indoors and on devices a lot more, working remotely. You know, we we have seen this this issue where you've just touched upon sort of dry eyes and the development of dry eye syndrome a lot more in the population. Um, what are you know, I've heard about these kind of regimes where there's twenty twenty twenty, where you know you look away for twenty seconds at your at a distance right. of 20, 20 meters, perhaps could you explain some of these these kind of tools people can use to uh, perhaps um, naturally sure. uh, relax their eyes and, and relieve them? Yeah, yeah, that's a very good uh, question. And it kind of piggybacks along what I was saying earlier is that, um, you know, you have to be more cognizant of giving uh, your eyes their rights. Um, you know, I was reading some study that showed that people, at least in the United States, the average adult might be on their um, devices for up to six, seven hours a day. That's staggering when you think about it. And so we have to be more cognizant of our giving our eyes those breaks for the reasons that I mentioned. So the cornea stays lubricated. And so things like taking a, a break every 20 minutes, or if you're in an office setting and using um, eye drops or looking away from your screen for a bit, you're giving eyes their due right. You're allowing them to kind of recover to some degree. So 
we tend uh, to be more subconscious about blinking and those types of things, but we have to be more cognizant of it in the same way that we have to be more cognizant in the workplace of our posture, for example, because if your posture is kind of um, stuck in this rut, then you can have problems with your neck and your back, and that can add up over time. In the same way, uh, we, we need to take care of our eyes by making sure that we take breaks so that they don't get fatigued and that they stay lubricated using lubricating eye drops and things like that. Also, I do think that, um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, UV light can be very harmful and the sun has tremendous amounts of UV light. So you definitely, if you're in the bright light, should wear uh, sunglasses that protect your eyes. So these are very, uh, these are things that are very simple uh, but very, very effective and something we may need to be more cognizant of during, you know, these uh, lockdown situations, which hopefully we'll be getting out of soon. There's this element which, you know, as kids, we're always told, don't look at the sun directly. It's it's not good for you. Why, why is looking at bright light, uh, you spoke about, you know, the importance of wearing sunglasses in some settings, but why is, why is it that our eyes get damaged by looking at the sun? That's a good question. So obviously the sun, it, it produces an incredible amount of light, much more than our eye is capable of absorbing. Um, so looking at uh, the sun can cause uh, damage to your rods and cones, those photoreceptors that are so critical in the back of your eye to produce images. You basically can burn them. And if you do, then you can have blind spots in your vision. Uh, when we do cataract surgery or eye surgery, for example, our patients um, are under a bright microscope light. They're unable to close their eyelids because we have a lid speculum that keeps it open. And so during that um, eye surgery, there's always a risk that we can damage the retina from intense bright lights. So for that reason, we have ways to produce filters on the eye, lessen surgery time, keep the eyes lubricated so that we don't have what we call uh, medically phototoxicity. So looking at the sun can cause blind spots. Looking at an eclipse, for example, it's very important to wear special glasses so that you don't have those light rays directly, quote unquote, frying your eye or frying your retina. So that's why it's important to never look directly at the sun. You spoke about glasses. Um, one thing which I've always wanted to know, I wear glasses. I've been wearing glasses since I was a kid. Um, two questions. Why is it that we're seeing more? I know we've kind of touched upon this, but why is it that we're seeing more and more people, um, adults and children wearing uh, corrective lenses? Um, and also, how do corrective lenses work? How do glasses work? Yeah, so it, there's a different theories about why we're seeing, uh, you know, more uh, people wearing corrective lenses. And um, I think a lot of this has to do with environment. It has to because the propensity to need glasses has increased a lot um, in the last two centuries. Right. Uh, glasses have been around for a while, but we can actually track you know, the, the need for glasses in humanity at large. And certainly it's increased a lot in the last few decades and more so now than before. So there's something in the environment that is causing this. It's not just purely genetics. And that comes back to, um, you know, what kind of visual experience we are giving to our eyes. You know, we didn't have electronic devices before, or even we can backtrack a little bit to simple things like television, you know, um, looking at these types of things for extended periods of time, subjecting your eyes to more indoor visual experiences rather than outdoor visual experiences probably contributes more to the need for um, 
for glasses. Um, you know, I, I get asked by parents all the time that, can you tell my kid that if they watch too much TV, they're going to need glasses? And I don't go so far as to say that that's, that's the reality. But I do think that if you, you're not striking that balance between um, staying away from devices or watching television for a long period of time or looking at your phone, if you try to strike that balance and um, use your eyes in a more natural setting, uh, that can only be healthy. In terms of what glasses do for our vision, quite simply, if you just think of it from an optic standpoint, uh, if you are nearsighted, you, uh, you're, the light is not landing on your retina, it's out of focus. So basically the lenses, Fathir uh, Saab, that are sitting in front of your eyeballs right now, they're refocusing the light so it lands where it needs to. Now, the question is, is that when you are, let's say, seven, eight years old and vision starts to get blurred, you take your children to the eye doctor and they say, oh, you need glasses now. Is there anything that could be done to prevent the need for glasses? Are there things that we can do that can delay the onset of needing glasses? And the answer is that, yes, now more than ever, we have research to show that there are certain things that can slow the progression of, for example, myopia. Uh, there's a drop called atropine, which uh, dilates the pupil. And in very minute concentrations, we now know that it can slow the progression of myopia. Uh, in a lot of uh, far East Asian countries, and it's now becoming more popular in Western countries, there's something called orthokeratology, where you actually put hard contact lenses um, on the eyes at night to kind of reshape the cornea, take them off so that during the day, your eyes have effectively changed a little bit in shape so that you can stay in focus and not wow. need glasses. Some of these treatments are controversial. Um, it's not a one size fits all. For some people, they're unable to do these types of treatments. But, but there are some modalities we have now for children that we didn't have before. And then, of course, there are, um, there's been a, a revolution in refractive eye surgery where laser treatments can change the shape of the cornea so that you don't need glasses anymore. And uh, obviously, that's very popular. That's a whole discussion about who it could benefit and what are, what are the risks of that. So this is a question I've always had. Are lenses better or are corrective uh, glasses better or there's no difference? There's, you know, people saying you shouldn't wear lenses overnight yeah. or it dries out or a lens could go to the back yeah. of your eye. So... Yeah, short answer is glasses or spectacles are better than contact lenses for the simple reason that you're not introducing a foreign object into your eyeball, right? Let's face it, our eyes weren't meant to have, um, you know, a silicon-like structure moving around over the cornea. Uh, it, they just weren't meant to have that. And so uh, glasses are obviously uh, safer in that respect. Glasses are also a mode of protection for your eyes, right? So you're actually physically uh, protecting um, and deflecting things from your eyes by wearing glasses. Um, but I've had that so many yeah. times when, you know, you're right. walking and something just right. hits. I'm, I'm, I'm actually thankful that that's right. that yeah, that's I'm right. wearing uh, glasses. But of course, then, then the disadvantages of, of glasses are you have to make sure that you have them on your face. Sometimes they're not comfortable. Um, and then, of course, there's the cosmetic aspect of it. People just don't like the way glasses look. And so that's where contact lenses have also undergone quite a revolution in the last several decades, whereas before they were fraught with issues. Now, um, the technology is such that uh, contact lenses um, have become very safe. Um, they have what's called a diffusion index. See, our cornea, the front of our eye, 
more than 50% of the oxygen that our cornea gets is from our atmosphere. The rest is from blood circulation. So we rely on oxygen to, to um, keep our eyes healthy. And so if you're covering that with a contact lens, you're basically depriving the cornea of oxygen. But contact lenses now have, what, have a high uh, diffusion index. So they're very porous and they allow oxygen to come through. And as a result, they're also very comfortable. Um, so, and then, you know, if you're, if you're playing sports or football or basketball or whatnot, there's also the convenience of not having to wear glasses. Um, but yes, there that's, are the risks. That's a huge one. That's yeah, a huge, that's a, a huge, huge advantage. I was going to say that's a huge one because for me, for me, it was, I was breaking so many glasses going through school that, it, you know, it, it gets quite expensive and it's just a constant going and get, getting them made again. So contact lenses was a Yes, game. and not everybody can wear contact lenses. You have to train yourself to be able to wear them. For some people, just the thought of coming close to the eye kind of uh, creates some anxiety. But it's amazing how you can train the cornea and then you can apply contact lenses. Uh, and so, uh, but, you know, there are inherent risks of infection with contact lenses and things like that. So like with everything, there's risks and benefits. But if somebody, um, you know, is eager to get rid of their glasses through refractive surgery or contact lenses, I don't discourage them from doing that. But just the general rule of thumb is if you can get by with glasses and if that's the way um, you can see better, then that's always better than the alternative, which is contacts. Now, I think on a on a personal note, there's there have been sort of great advancements in in the the development of contact lenses. Um, I myself, uh, I'm sure you're aware, Doctor, and uh, you know I wear 3D scanned, 3D designed um, scleral lenses, which are you know hugely comfortable, but also um, it's quite a challenge to go and fit them, and sort of there's all these other risks and things with infection. Um, but no, with with the development of technology, we've we've certainly found that they and they, they are continuing to develop. Yeah, this three D technology of scleral contact lenses for conditions like keratoconus, which is a genetic condition where the front of your eye, the cornea, has uh, it has warpage; it has an abnormal curvature to it. Uh, just a few decades ago, there were no good treatments other than corneal transplant surgery. But now we have so much technology. There's something called cross linking, where you can actually uh, through chemical reactions, you can change the shape of the cornea. And special contact lenses, uh, Dr. Hasham, like you mentioned, at which you wear, uh, these are revolutionary. And they've, uh, they've uh, uh, improved eyesight and they've uh, delayed surgery or even prevented eye surgery in some cases. Uh, they've restored vision to the ability that people can live very meaningful lives. So contact lens technology is a whole science and medical field in and of itself. And um, I myself actually benefit from them because um, I've always worn glasses. I'm 45 years old. And uh, a few years ago, it was actually on return from a trip to the UK. Um, I uh, developed a cataract in one eye, just out of the blue. Now, I'm a cataract surgeon, so I do cataract surgery on a weekly basis. But within a few weeks, I realized that my vision had become quite distorted in one eye. And I was freaking out. I didn't know what was going on. And so I ended up seeing my colleague and he said, you actually have developed a cataract, which is unusual to develop it so rapidly. A cataract is when the lens of the eye becomes cloudy. And so I needed cataract surgery. And uh, after undergoing cataract surgery, I have an artificial lens implant in my right eye. And with that, I can see clearly without the need for glasses or contacts. Um, but because my other eye um, is naturally nearsighted and didn't develop a cataract, so I just wear a contact lens in one eye. 
and that seems to do the trick. And, you know, the contact lens that I wear is a daily disposable. So I throw it away at the end of the day and then I get a new one. And um, it's, it's, it's been a phenomenal, uh, it's been a phenomenal uh, change for me, uh, for the better by the grace of God. Amazing. Now, let's move on and talk about some of the work you do for Humanity First. Um, you're the director of the Gift of Sight program. Can you tell us a bit about the, the work you do and poten- potentially also some of the work you've touched upon, cataract surgery, um, some of the other types of surgeries that you perform and the impact that this has had on people's lives? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, <clears throat> first of all, I would say that um, I've I've been blessed to serve uh, Humanity First, which is a great organization. Uh, but the work that I do pales in comparison to some of the phenomenal work that people have done uh, for such a long time in the field of ophthalmology. Um, but uh, but nonetheless, I've I've been able to serve as director for the Gift of Sight program. Uh, so for those in the audience who are unfamiliar, Humanity First is a nonprofit organization. Uh, a humanitarian organization. It initially was created in the early 90s uh, for the purposes of disaster relief. Uh, And it sort of expanded over time. And uh, now one of the components of this organization is uh, sending teams, medical teams, uh, to perform uh, surgeries or conduct medical camps in different parts of the world that are underserved. So the Gift of Sight program aims to do just that very thing, but for um, uh, eye care for delivering of eye care. So, uh, in 2010, I I had the good fortune of working with Humanity First, and we went to Guatemala and we set up an eye camp over there where we performed surgery on uh, patients, underserved patients who didn't have access to very basic healthcare, and we were able to perform eye surgery uh, to restore vision. We were able to take um, spectacles, glasses, and prescribe those to patients, and this was all free care. And that sort of took off and we were able to go, um, you know, every year. And by the grace of God, we've been able to go, I think, 12 or 13 uh, times now in the last decade. And we've done, I think, over a thousand surgeries. And I think I've seen maybe over 5,000 patients. Um, And I say we, and I really want to emphasize the we portion because um, I've been blessed to work with this phenomenal team of volunteers. Not all of them are even in the medical profession. Uh, as well as volunteers locally in Guatemala who make all of this stuff happen. And so um, I'm just one small portion of that uh, that's been able to do that. But but the stories have been phenomenal. Um, I can tell you one, there's many, but I can tell you one story that really uh, uh, touched my heart and it really uh, validated the sense of purpose that we all long for and that we look for. Uh, there was a husband and wife, an elderly couple in Guatemala who uh, arrived at our clinic. Uh, and uh, you could tell that they had walked probably seven miles. They weren't wearing shoes. Um, and, uh, you know, they both uh, couldn't see very well. Uh, uh, the wife, she could actually see reasonably well, but she she really had come to bring her husband who was basically blind and couldn't see at all. So we diagnosed him with cataract and uh, he needed uh, cataract surgery to be able to see. So we were able to perform the surgery on one eye. And I still recall that the next day we removed his eye patch and he was quite startled at what he could see. Um, It had been, I think, three or four decades that he was unable to see. And even though his vision was still blurred because it takes several days for the vision to recover from cataract surgery, he had already seen such an improvement that he was able to see his wife's face for the first time. 
um, after many, many years. And he even commented on that. Um, and uh, he was in tears and his whole family was in tears. Um, and so that was extremely gratifying. And that's actually one of the reasons that I chose the field of ophthalmology, because you can you can do a simple surgery or you can prescribe glasses or you can do something to restore what most people would say is their most precious sense. And you can really make an impact on their lives. And so when you go to these underserved uh, places and, uh, you know, you can do that, uh, it's it's extremely gratifying and it actually gives you a longing to do more. And so that's why we've been going as many times as we have. Uh, and we wish we can actually go more often. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're now expanding and trying to do these projects in other places, including in West Africa. And it must have a huge impact. I mean, like you said, the sight, you know, it's such an important sense, you know, restore, restoring that, particularly in sort of deprived places. For many people, it can kind of enhance their life. They're able to work. They're able to, to kind of get on with their everyday life. Whereas if you take that away, it's almost this, in many cases, it's their source of income that's that's been affected or, you know, their life in general, the quality of life. You said it perfectly. I, I think uh, restoring uh, somebody's eyesight, uh, it uh, restores his or her um, ability to function in life. And what we often don't think about, but we've certainly now appreciate and realize going to Guatemala for so many years is that um, especially in cultures where it's a family unit or an extended family unit where everybody sort of relies on one another and um, coexists, cohabitates, that if somebody is uh, sight impaired or blind, then it, that, it ties up many other people in the family who have to care for that person. So by restoring eyesight, you're actually liberating a lot of members of the family. And I recall this actual couple that I was talking to you about where the, the wife was elderly and couldn't take care of her husband who couldn't see after his eyesight, his daughter was able to go to school finally, and she's actually a volunteer for Humanity First now. So um, giving uh, this quote unquote gift of sight, it sounds cliche, but it truly is a gift um, because it, it um, like I said, it, it impacts the, the larger family and the larger social circle um, in profound ways. And, uh, you know, I always uh, m want to make a point and make it clear so it doesn't weigh on my conscience conscience that, um, you know, we never want to imply that it's our surgeries or the things that we do is what restores vision. It's really the grace of God. And that that goes with everything. And so uh, we try to inculcate the spirit, which the founder of humanity for uh, first, um, Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed, uh, the fourth uh, caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, which he um, said time and again that uh, we are simply volunteers and uh, we are just doing our duty, which is to serve our fellow man. And uh, any positive outcomes that, that result from these humble efforts is really due to the grace of God. And it's God's mercy that these folks are able to see better. We're just simply the instruments to make that possible. And the fifth successor to the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, who's been such an inspiration for me, and it was under his guidance that I even went into humanity first to do these things. He's also constantly reminded us that uh, it's not us, it's, it's, um, it's, it's the grace of God that, uh, that any, uh, you know, medical service that we provide, it produces optimal results. So we always need to keep that first and foremost in mind. Um, kind of just moving on, um, just closing off and for our listeners, we, God willing, going to have um, Dr. Asin back on the show and talk about 
um, his research. And Dr. Hassan would love to know what you've kind of found as a Muslim ophthalmologist going through your training during university, your medical training. Um, the Quran talks a lot about the eye and sight uh, in spiritual terms, in you know, literally talking um, about the eye as well. And, um, you know, there's there's lots about the eye and vision. What have you found as an ophthalmologist, as a Muslim ophthalmologist um, around this topic? And, you know, we're going to go into this in a separate episode much deeper. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was in uh, when I was a kid, uh, when I was a child, I remember in in grade four, um, my father bought me a model of the human eye. It was part of a school project. And uh, we had to we had to do some sort of a science project or do a report on something. And he decided to uh, bring me a model of the eye and I painted it and I studied it and I presented it. And actually, that was sort of where I, I got hooked. <laughs> I got amazed at sort of the human eye at a young age. And then uh, when I got into medical school and I really started to study it, I was actually blown away by uh, how how beautiful God has created uh, the visual system within the human eye. It's, it's, it's truly one of the miracles. And I actually feel like the anatomy of the eye, the function of the eye is one of the reasons why uh, it, it's one of the proofs of God's existence. And I really strongly feel that. Um, and I remember reading, it was in actually a medical school. I read a book by uh, the aforementioned fourth successor of the Amelia Muslim community, Mirza Tahir Ahmed. Uh, he wrote a book called um, Revelation, Rationality, Knowledge and Truth in which he talks about various uh, uh, spiritual things, including um, existence of God. And there is a debate about uh, evolution and natural selection and creationism. And if these things like the human eye, were they just created? Uh, did they evolve? Could they have been uh, produced by random selection? And to illustrate this point, he argues that no, there had to be a designer. There had to be a creator. And he used the example of the human eye and he went into an incredible amount of detail about the anatomy of the eye and how the form and the function of the eye beautifully mirror one another. And he drew this conclusion that it's impossible for one to, after understanding the way the eye works, say that this was due to random chance. There had to be a creator. And that really stuck with me when I was in medical school. And it actually drew my attention more so to pursuing the field of ophthalmology. I was thinking not so much about what it can do for other people and just sort of the medical practice side of it. It was just more about just being fascinated with the eye itself in this context. And um, by the grace of God, I was able to uh, pursue this career of ophthalmology. And in that process, I've appreciated sort of uh, what the Holy Quran, the, the scripture in Islam, what it tells about the eyes. And uh, I actually was doing a little bit of research on this. And as you said, we can we can have a discussion about this. but the Holy Quran talks about uh, the eyes and eyesight um, in many, many places. And uh, when, you know, in, in preparation for this talk, I actually went on uh, holyquran.io, which is a new app from Al-Islam. And you can search any word and you can find where it's mentioned in the Holy Quran. So I just put in eyes and it showed up 81 times in the, in the Holy Quran. And then I put in words like light and sight and vision. And I found that 466 times in the Holy Quran, uh, there's a reference to visual function. And uh, if you sort through visual function in the Holy Quran, 
in a majority of those references, it's not mentioned in a scientific related way. You know, it's related in an analogy, you know, so that like, for example, you can see God or, or things like that, or God has covered your eyes and it's more of an analogy for you being blinded to spirituality. But there's actually places in the Holy Quran where eyes and eyesight and vision are mentioned in a medical sense. You know, cataract or the cloudiness of the lens is mentioned, you know, in the chapter talking about uh, the prophet Joseph. And there's a lot of instances of this. And this has become sort of like a little bit of a pet project of mine where I'm trying to research more and more of what God has specifically taught us about the humanity and function of the eye. But what I feel is that um, the eyes are such an important part of the body and they're also sort of a window into the soul in many, many ways. And it's only when you read the Holy Quran that you appreciate that more and more. And there are verses, for example, in chapter 90, verse 9 of the Holy Quran, uh, God says, Alam najallahu Have we not given him two eyes? He's questioning man. And he's saying, did we not give you something for you to see around you and also to appreciate God's creations? And so again, he is, he is, he is reminding uh, humanity that God has bestowed you with an incredible amount of gift. In other places, God says that, have we not given you ears and eyes and the hearts, but little thanks do you give. And then my favorite, uh, my favorite verse of the Holy Quran, which I've actually put on my Twitter bio because it's touched me so much is in chapter six, verse 104, where God says um, eyes cannot reach him, but he reaches the eyes. And this is something that's really a verse that's very near and dear to my heart because God has given us this incredible capacity to see his beautiful creation. And it's only in seeing his creation that we see him. You know, otherwise he is invisible. And so it's this paradox, but it makes beautiful sense. Um, and then the other thing that I do appreciate is that um, there's an incredible amount of contribution to the science of vision and ophthalmology in Islamic history. And there is a period of time from the fifth century up until maybe the 11th century where most of the research and most of the advancements in the field of ophthalmology were done by uh, the Muslim world, specifically by Arab doctors. And there's a whole fascinating history about that, including things like cataract and retinal treatment. Uh, the first book of optics was written by, uh, by a Muslim. And so this is also something that I've done. A, I, I'm very curious about, and I'm trying to do a lot more research on, and I certainly encourage uh, the viewers particularly those who are Muslim, to read about the Muslim contributions to medicine, but in particular um, to ophthalmology. And Dr. Asan, um, you spoke about this, the Muslim contribution to um, optics. And, you know, you have people like Ibn Haytham. Growing up, going through all your medical training, um, this is a huge, um, it's a somewhat controversial topic, but there's a huge element of Muslim scientists um, actually contributing to science uh, at a huge level on the shoulders of which Western science actually grew. Um, do, do, do you feel personally that this element isn't highlighted enough um, within Western academia as well? And for those Muslims who want to know more, anyone who wants to know more, um, what do you recommend in terms of researching this topic of Muslims um, going, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I do think that it's not, uh, it's not emphasized enough. Um, certainly in my own education, I had to search for, 
for, and find this stuff. It wasn't uh, told to me. I do think that there is worldwide acceptance and recognition of the contribution of Muslims to the field of optics, as you mentioned by um, doctors like Al-Haytham. And um, his treatise, The Book of Optics, is widely accepted and, and known as, as the um, basic initial authority on this field of visual science from which all other scientists were able to uh, carry on some of that work. Um, but but there, it requires a deeper dive, and you have to search for that. And I do suggest that people uh, research this. There's plenty of stuff online. There are members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, scholars who've actually researched this, and they've written articles about Muslim contributions to ophthalmology, um, invested a lot of time in it. Uh, there's a scientist, uh, Dr. Zakaria Virk in Canada, who I had the honor of meeting and I know his sons in the United States. Um, he's written a lot about this as well. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, um, Mirza Tahir Ahmed, um, His Holiness, he has touched upon these topics in a lot more detail in his books. So there's a lot there for, I think, uh, the youth to, to search and read about. And it's very, very inspiring. Um, you know, the contributions of Muslims to medicine, uh, Dr. Nahasham is also uh, a doctor, I'm sure, he himself has done the research and he's found a lot of contributions from Muslims to his field as well. So there's plenty out there. It's not readily evident in Western countries, but it's certainly a source of inspiration. And to your point, I do encourage our youth to, you know, go as simply as online or um, they, people don't go to libraries anymore. So just go online and research it and it'll be amazing what you can discover. Sure. Um, Jazakallah. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Hassan. It's been a, a pleasure. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm sure uh, Dr. Hasham has thoroughly enjoyed it. And, you know, there's so much more which we can ask. Um, but, of course, due to the time, we'll have to um, put it uh, an end there. But, of course, like we mentioned, we do want to go deeper into your studies of the Holy Quran and optics and the vision. And um, yeah, it's no, I, again, I appreciate you having me. It was it was fun. It was enjoyable. Um, and I hope I was able to do some diligence. Um, uh, I think there's uh, many, many bright people, including in the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, many, many ophthalmologists uh, who uh, are very nuanced and they know this subject very, very well. And um, I think it would be great to have them on as well. And uh, I also encourage uh, youth who are interested in the field of medicine to give strong consideration to ophthalmology. There's a big demand for it. And I hope uh, people pursue that path. Dr. Hassan, thank you very much. It's been super interesting. And, you know, there's lots of areas which we could continue asking about. But, uh, yeah, thank you for joining us. It's, it's been really, really interesting learning about the vision, the eye. And we want to get you on in the future and talk about the Holy Quran and your research of the eye. Thank you for listening to the Al-Hakam Inspire podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Visit our socials on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Al-Hakam Inspire. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave your comments there. We would love to hear your feedback and thoughts. So send us an email to inspire at alhakam.org.